Filmmakers make films, but films make filmmakers. From blockbuster premieres to grindhouse theaters, late night cable to the local video store, there is no greater classroom for aspiring filmmakers than cinema itself. Join your host, Eric Skorzynski, as he dives deep into the minds of legendary directors, producers, actors, and more to discover their biggest influences and to explore the impact their films are leaving behind. This is Film School. Grab your popcorn. Class is about to begin. Have you ever heard of the movie Home Alone? Mystic Pizza? Smoke Signals? Teen Wolf? You probably have. In fact, I'm willing to bet that every single person in my audience has heard of and seen most of those films. And if you have, one of the men you have to thank is Scott Rosenfeld. Scott is a producer who has brought to life some incredible projects and has even launched the careers of some incredible actors like Julia Roberts and and Lily Taylor. And he even took an established actor in Farrah Fawcett and totally changed the perception of how the public viewed her with her serious role in Extremities. Scott addresses filmmaking from both the creative side and the business side as a producer, And I love talking with him about his influences like Martin Scorsese, John Cassavetes, Francis Coppola, and others, and tried to find the balance with him between artistic liberty and all the business that goes into show business. As you'll find out in this episode, the cliche of the producer sitting behind a desk smoking a cigar just trying to make a quick buck is anything but how I would describe Scott. He has a great conversation, talks about so many helpful things, both for film fans and for people who are aspiring filmmakers. You're not going to want to miss one second of this interview. Let's go ahead and get started with Scott Rosenfeld, Hollywood producer. Scott, thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. You're welcome. My pleasure. Yeah, I've, I've been listening to a lot of your interviews and Typically, when you listen to people who work in the industry, there's a story of a childhood movie that inspired them. And they said, I want to learn how to make these. That's not the case with you. And I was I was fascinated by that. You, you mentioned like appreciating movies growing up and enjoying them. But the flip from being a consumer to wanting to be on the other side of the camera happened a lot later. Can you kind of give us a rundown of, of what that looked like and how that developed? Uh, you know, growing up, I grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania and, and it was pre-video. So anybody who made anything was making eight millimeter films. Hmm. You had to know how to edit it. You had to do. I, I just wasn't into it. And it just wasn't my thing. Now, I was athletic. I played baseball, basketball. Uh, I wanted to be a writer hmm. since the fifth grade. So that was always in my mind not screenwriting per se. I wanted to be a novelist or a journalist, you know? Yeah. And um, so I, I geared myself toward that, that and, and baseball. I had a minor league tryout, but you know, it, it you, you only go so far, you, you right. know, with, I mean, I had the skills, but it wasn't going to be my career. And mm. I, I went to college for journalism. I went to Boston university my freshman year and it was a good journalism program. And I got into it. And I was writing for the school paper, uh, doing reviews around Boston. And um, I, I had a, uh, a writing assignment in a, in a graduate level short story class that I had taken that I had gotten into as a freshman. And it was to write a short screen one week, just write a screenplay. I mean, you know, there were I hadn't even looked at a screenplay ever or a book or right. 
there was we weren't really running around with computers and looking on the internet at anything. So I figured I, I saw a couple of scripts in the library and uh, you know, like I said, I had always enjoyed movies. So watched a lot of movies, but I wrote, I, I wrote this script as an exercise in this class. And I, it was, it was an, uh, an economy of writing and then trying to get something across that really intrigued me. Of course, mm. it's similar to playwriting. Um, it's different, a little different, but it's certainly much different than prose. And I liked it. I really liked it. So I started thinking, I I really was interested in having a journalism career, which later in life, I still wish to a certain extent I'd had because I do a lot of um, true stories. And I do a lot of digging in a way that's reminiscent of being a journalist. When I write the things I write, I find things often when I'm writing that People who have written books about the subject go, hmm, how do you find that out? You know, so I know I sort of had a penchant for that, but I also wanted to tell stories. Right. I I wanted to make stuff up, basically. I, you know, in journalism, I started thinking, well, I can't tell you to go report on this thing and make everything up. That wouldn't really be fair, would it? And so uh, I looked around and, you know, it wasn't hard at the time to figure out there was either NYU, uh, I mean, BU had a film program. But I wasn't that excited about it. It was it was a good program, but not a, not what I wanted. You didn't get your hands on the equipment soon enough. So sure. I, I, you know, I, it wasn't hard to find NYU, UCLA and USC. Uh, there was really, you know, people will say there was more than that. But really, those were all those were the top three. It's different. It's a little different now with other right. schools. But that was it. And I and although I, I wanted to go to L.A., I, I grew up in Pennsylvania being a Dodger fan. So I had no fear of Los Angeles and I was looking forward to it, but I didn't think my parents weren't quite ready for, you know, being 3000 miles away. I don't know. I I, I wasn't afraid of leaving home, but I wasn't sure I wanted to go that quickly. So I locked into NYU, got there, fell in love. I always wanted to live in New York, which was another thing. I I always I dreamed as a kid of living by myself or in an apartment in New York. So here I was. I got into NYU, and I had an apartment in New York in the Village, and it was perfect. It was absolutely amazing. It was a, the program was run by a gentleman named Haig Manujian, who was you know somebody that Marty Scorsese still talks about to this day, oh. um, and it was an extraordinary. And that's really what got me going. You know, yeah. I, I was in New York in the late seventies. It was an exciting time that sort of, you know, studio, which is now independent, but but studios were making, I mean, a studio made Mean Streets. It right. would never happen today, right? Yeah. Warner Brothers made Mean Streets and Coppola's work and, you know, John Cassavetes was a big influence. I wasn't as much into like, you know, although I like John Ford and Hitchcock and I, I do and I've studied them, I was more into that that new world, you know, mm. Scorsese and Coppola and, and, you know, Cassavetes too. They're really indie style filmmaking. Yeah. That's what intrigued me more. And New York really fit into that more than LA. Right. LA is always, the schools in LA were always geared more commercially. So I went to NYU and, you know, I graduated and uh, got out and started kicking around driving a cab and working as a PA, I worked. So you live taxi driver. You like Scorsese so much. You're like, I'll drive a taxi. I did. <laughs> I definitely did. 
with with Scorsese and Cassavetes and Coppola, was it something where obviously the types of films they were making were they capture that independent filmmaking, kind of breaking the rules of yeah. traditional cinema. Was that what you admired was the film themselves, or was it something of the spirit of a Scorsese, like the, the person and the business mindset of those independent filmmakers? Yeah, I think it was the fact that they were, they were, you know, telling stories, but they were, you know, uh, in a sense, making their own rules. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, um, uh, Woman Under the Influence, and even before it, Husbands, you know, Cassavetti's films, you know, people would say, wow, all that improvisation. And he would he would tell people, you know, we rehearsed all that. It looks like some of it is it looks like improvisation, but we actually rehearsed mm. all of that. Right. And and it was this sort of the ability to show real life. I, I you know, Midnight Cowboy and movies like Five Easy Pieces, even Bob Rafelson as a director, mm. you know, somewhat this day unheralded, but an amazing director, you know, who made these lifelike films that mimic life, but, but were, you know, artifice to the extent that they were movies. Yeah. And I just love the idea of, of something real, something, you know, um, gripping you that was real. So that's, that's what I really fell in love with and Coppola's stuff. You know, I mean, I mean, look, Godfather and Godfather two are, right. are big movies, but, but before that, even or after that, um, oh geez, all of a sudden I'm 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 bad. Uh, the conversation, you know, like right. the conversation was breaking all kinds of rules, and right. you know they were they you know even more than Lucas. Lucas, the funny thing is about George Lucas is he never broke any rules. He just decided he didn't want to live in L.A. I mean, from right. my perspective, I, mm. I don't nothing wrong with them, but he made commercial movies. Right. The fact that he bucked Hollywood is really silly. He didn't yeah. buck Hollywood. He just lived in the Bay area. That's all. He yeah. just didn't want to live in LA. Right. So these other guys though, were doing stuff. Hal Ashby, you mm. know, shampoo and these things, they were doing things. They were, they were looking at the world and they were coming up with, you know, points of view. So, that got me. And New York was a good time. It was a good time to be there. Sidney Lumet, you know, Serpico, commercial movie, but also with kind of a great edge. Right. All, all these kinds of people were popping up. Woody Allen's great period, you know, and, you know, the, the good stuff, Manhattan and before Manhattan and, you know, all, all this cool stuff that was happening, you know. I mean, Dustin Hoffman, even Marathon Man and John Schlesinger and all these great filmmakers were doing very cool but commercial things. So that got me. And and that's what I wanted to do. And I, you know, I worked a little bit in New York. I worked for about a year after I graduated. I worked as a PA on Saturday Night Fever. I worked on a film called Short Eyes, which was a Pulitzer Prize winning drama by Miguel Pinheiro. Um, and... Um, but I got the bug finally. I finally was ready to go to L.A. I knew New York was really rough back then. There were very few independent films made. The, the word independent didn't even really wasn't even the word we used. No. There really weren't a lot of movies being made. And everybody who worked would kill each other to get the one job that was coming up. Oh, Martin Bregman's producing a movie. Oh, Al Pacino's company's doing a movie. Up, oh, Woody Allen. And that was it. Like that was the whole winter. Right. Yeah. And, or summer, you know, so I knew I had to go and I was ready to go to LA and I moved to LA in the summer of 1977. I moved on the day of the major brownout in New York city. Hmm. 
I moved that morning and I never looked back. And I got into making um, um, sort of the, the B movies. You know, I worked for New World and Crown International. Wow. I made a movie called Galaxina. I was a production manager and, you know, built my 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 experience by by having a bigger job. I was a production manager on Galaxina, but it, but it was a, you know, I would have never done that if I was at a studio. I've been a PA for 10 years. Yeah. So and on those films, like on on on. Uh, oh, God, I made a movie called Alligator and I was one of the production managers. But the other production manager was Tom Jacobson. Who, who was an executive at Fox and ran John Hughes's company. Gail Hurd was my PA. Wow. Uh, Louis Teague directed the movie and John Sayles mm. wrote it. And this all happened in these B movies, you know, an alligator in the sewers of LA, but it was a great tumult of time, you know, to learn your craft, learn it while you were young, which is why I was able to start, you know, I found a script, at this company called Atlantic releasing that had just made this movie called Valley girl. And I saw Valley girl and I knew the people at Atlantic and I thought these guys, they're taking this old genre, sort of this B movie genre, but they're, they're doing something with it. Something's changing here. Yeah. You know, a woman directed it and it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't nudity. It wasn't TNA. It was something different. I went to that company. I said, I said to them, you guys are onto something. I'm thinking the same thing, sort of a kind of making a movies on a B body, right? I called mm. it a movie head, B movie body. And they, I, I brought them a project. They made it uh, with Willem Dafoe and it didn't do that well, but it was a great introduction and we liked each other. And they said, you know, we have this script we want you to take a look at. Why don't you just take a look at this thing called Teen Wolf? Hmm. And I looked at the script. It's very funny worked with the writers, brought on a director, got Michael J. Fox committed for a very short period of time where we were forced to prep the film in four weeks and shoot it in four weeks. And, you know, they asked us, can you prep this film in four weeks? Well, you're, you're producing a movie with Michael J. Fox. You don't say no, right? Even, right. If, even if you think it's impossible. And we pulled it off. And, you know, Teen Wolf was, was a studio quality movie for $1.8 million that made more money than every just about any studio comedy that year including one of john's films one of it went up against i think weird science and it made more money than weird science which yeah. john pointed out to me later when i worked with him on home alone so i mean that that you know that's how things started getting going to the point right. where i i i was i knew sam goldwin and the same thing happened he had been developing the script for mystic pizza but wasn't happy with it and brought me on and I came up with a bunch of ideas, which he liked, hired another writer and then hired Alfred Urey to finish the rewrite. And then we were able to cast Julia and a new new group of people. Sam, to his credit, allowed us to go after new people. You know, there were a bunch of people who liked the script and wanted to be in it. It was the current Rat Pack, you know, good people, Ali Sheedy, Phoebe Cates. They were all, we all got calls about it. And I said to Sam Goldwyn, I want to have my own. I want to have our own Brad right. Pack. He said, go ahead. So we can, we found Julia and Lily Taylor and, and you know, Annabeth Gish. And it was extraordinary. So, you know, we were, we were sort of trying to create a world of making kind of like almost studio quality films, but independent with some independent spirit, but commercial. I should say independent films that could be commercial. Right. You know? 
And that's what Teen Wolf was too. I wasn't, I wasn't invited. I never got invited to Sundance until Smoke Signals because I, I always made, I made independent films, but they were commercial. And Teen Wolf was never going to show its face at Sundance. Hey, right? Well, <laughs> I, it's easy now. So like now looking back, you look at all these films, like I, I laughed when it was like your first job as production assistant on, you know, Saturday Night Fever, which is, which is, that's unreal. That's the first movie you get to be associated with, even in a, in a smaller role. Like that's, that's an amazing, yeah. it's an amazing movie to say like, Oh, I started there. I cut my teeth on yeah. a movie. That's a classic. And then you go forward and it's teen wolf and it's mystic pizza. And it's all these movies that have massive acclaim. Now when you're working on them, going from place to place at a rapid pace, you know, did you, did you sense that at all? Did you sense like well, this project has gravity and, and it's going to go somewhere and this one's a job, you know, like, uh, well, to some extent, yes. What I w- would say is you don't ever think if you're thinking clearly, Oh my God, I think this is going to be a big hit. Hmm. You never do that. I think people do that once in a while. It's a mistake. It's not something I would ever do. Everyone that comes to Hollywood to act yeah, <laughs> is going to do that. But yeah. I think when I got my hands on mystic pizza, I knew you know, we could turn this into something special and it felt special making it. And that's the best it can be to make something as high quality it can be. And then hopefully the audience will get it. Mm. Teen Wolf wasn't Shakespeare, but it was incredibly funny and turned the genre on its head a little bit. And, and that was very cool. A, a lot about that was very cool. So that had its own thing, you know, um, you know, Smoke Signals really did the same thing. You know, we had an amazing script by the writer Sherman Alexi, who wrote, you know, what could have been, a, you know, every time people think about Native Americans, it's got to be heavy and sweat lodges and all that yeah. stuff. And and Sherman, being just a human being, you know, wrote a script about what it's like to be a Native American, but what what we all go through. And it was funny. It was sad. It was, it told jokes about itself, you know? So it wasn't this ponderous stuff. You know, I, I noticed it on Facebook every time I don't do Facebook much, but people write to people and then somebody will, everything's serious. And I write a funny comment and I think people are looking at each other going, are we allowed to laugh? Are we actually allowed to laugh? (laughs) I, I, I feel like, you know, we always, I always good at balancing out, you know, comedy and drama laughter and cheers and trying to combine that into something, uh, you know, humanistic. Well, and, but you see you that with your that, influences. Yeah. Yeah. You don't, you know, you just push to make, I, I mean, I knew, you know, smoke signals was an amazing script. I felt it was an amazing script to this day. It's the best script I've ever worked on, on any movie. Mm. Critical thinking came out very well recently, but, but, but smoke signals for me is the best script I've ever worked on. I've right. uh, been involved in, and uh, I, you just knew it. I knew it right away. I knew it the second I picked it up and read it. You know, we, I told my partner in Seattle, I was living in Seattle at the time, and uh, we were going to go to Hollywood and get it funded. He was going to put up development money, but not anything else. And I read the script and I went to him and I said, uh-uh, we're funding the movie. He was a high net worth individual and there were some other people involved in the company. I said, no, not this one. This one you finance. This one puts us on the map. This puts out a lot of people on the map. And he agreed. And it was the right thing to do. Yeah. I mean, speak, speaking about putting people on the map, I mean, that, that's another thing that stands out 
in your career is that there's, you know, obviously I think my audience has probably heard of Macaulay Culkin and <laughs> Julia Roberts. Yeah, and even, even like thinking back and look at, you know, Mystic Pizza, which I love, like, Lily Taylor, you know, like we talk about Julia Roberts, like Lily Taylor, that was a first major role. And then even, you know, I'm a huge fan of extremities. Um, I, I love yeah. that movie and Farrah Fawcett in a way that's not her yeah. first role by any stretch, but that was one of the movies that changed the public perception of what kind of role she could take. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Again, looking back, it's easy to say like, yeah, of course, like Julia, we'd all like to think we would cast Julia Roberts and we would find a Macaulay Culkin and a Lily Taylor and all these different people. What, how do you identify that star power sitting in a room with a piece of paper, a little bit of dialogue and just seeing hundreds of people? How do you spot those stars? Cause you've done it enough times where I think it's not an accident. I think there's something there. No, I, I, I mean, I don't usually toot my own horn, but it's not an toot away. Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) I'll toot it for you. I that's when, when that started to happen, I started to realize I really had an instinct for this business because it's, it's a, it's a creative, mostly creative instinct when you're sitting there and watching actors come in and out and in and out and in and out and good ones, you know, even ones that were close to her, uh, you, if, 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 I guess if you're, you're open, you know, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to say like your chakras are open, but if you're open to all of that, you feel, you feel it. For me, mm-hmm. I always felt it. I, I could tell when she came in that that was it. You know, there are other people in the room too, who all looked at each other and nodded the same mm-hmm. way, but I knew she had it. You know, there are other actors, you know, I knew they just had something that somebody else didn't have. Right. And, and, and you just sense it. I still feel it. If I felt like I ever lost it, I'd probably quit, you know, in, in all right. honesty, you know, I feel like I'd quit. Um, but it's, it's a sense and a feeling, and it's really right. a strong feeling that comes from, um, I don't know. I, I, I'm not even sure where it comes from, but it's, right. it came from somewhere and it's still here inside me. And that's the best I can describe it. Well, there, what comes from you and what you exude, that's, that's different from, I think the stereotype of the producer Because when you, when I think producer and I am someone that sits and watches tons of behind the scenes and reads books, I know this isn't the case, but when I think of producer, you get the Hollywood image of the guy with the cigar, with his feet on the desk and the suit saying, whatever we need to do to make the most money. And with you, you balance those two things. It's the left brain, right brain. You've mentioned on other interviews, you've talked about, you know, having that creative route, you went into it for love of storytelling. So how do you balance that artistic Liberty, taking those risks, going for the unknown, you know, rat pack, you know, versus going with tried and true, trying to meet your day and, and, you know, make the money back at the box office. And how do you weigh those things out? Well, they come in stages, you know, uh, early on in a project, when you're casting, you can let yourself be free sort of creatively. And as you start to coalesce into the cast you've picked and who the director is, then you start to build those, use those other aspects of yourself. Now you have to get a little bit more practical. How are we going to do this? Can this director really pull this off? You know, can this director work with actors? Are they going to faint dead away on the, on the, you know, the first problem that happens on the set, which, which does happen. Um, 
you know, and, and you, then I start to bring the practical things in after we've, we've gotten the focus on the script, the focus on the actors and the picking of the director. Those, the, to me, those are almost 100% creative. Um, mm. and, and after that, I start to bring in as a producer, okay, the management of all of this and, and, and working with the production manager to make sure the budget's going to match the vision of the director and all of those things to, and then keep everybody focused and not let the train go off the tracks. The easiest thing is to, is to not keep focus. Mm. You have to say, we're doing this and we're doing this this way. Yes, there's some little, of course, there's little things that come up, but you have to stick to the plan. Otherwise, mm. it's a mess. And some people think, oh, you know, yeah, we had this plan, but yeah, now we're on the set and we're going to do this instead, or it doesn't really work that well that way. And you have to keep the second part of it is very organized. I'm it's, it's that thing. I can, you know, the left brain, I'm a creative person and I write the right brain. I'm extraordinarily organized, like even my desk, you know, it's just like things are like, it's the way I am, my kitchen, my desk, I'm very organized. And I do that on purpose because you have to, you have to have rules, you know, in terms of how you make things and how you produce things and you have to do things, you know, you have to let, you can learn, you can learn new things. And I do all the time, but you have to make sure you keep focus on, on, on getting to that place, especially if you're getting financed by people, you know, people give you money, you know, whether it's corporation or whether it's individual people. And I've dealt with individual people a lot. And mm. you know, they ask you questions. You got to have answers. You know, right. you can't just say, "I don't know." Yeah, tomorrow we'll see how tomorrow is. It could be really interesting. You know, you have to already be pre-planned for what might go wrong tomorrow. So right. I think it's being able to solve problems, see problems almost before they happen, and and be ready to deal with them and fix them very, very, very quickly, and right. to keep the entire crew, all the key people, focused on making the same movie all the time hmm. the costume designer isn't off running off doing something strange oh i thought the director no the director said well the director never told anybody else always keeping everything focused so that everybody my one rule is always everybody knows the same information hmm. there's no hoarding of information yes some people think it's powerful to have their little pocket of information that nobody else knows i'm not a believer in it I'm not a believer in chaos. Some directors believe in chaos. I'm not a believer in it. Uh, I don't think anything good comes of it generally. And, and I just keep things focused so that the director, you know, is comfortable and able to do their work. Yeah. It, it's interesting with that context and knowing your inspirations, because you mentioned you liked films that were real life. They had the artifice, you know, obviously, or of, uh, you know, it's fictionalized. There's that veneer that slight Hollywood veneer over it, but it's a real life. You feel like you're placing the camera in someone's house or in their, you know, their pizza place or wherever it is or in their high school. And, you know, what's amazing is you mentioned, you know, a lot of these films, like not so much Scorsese, but if you look at Coppola, his early work and things like that, you feel this sense, like there's a lot of improvisation and there's that kind of, you know, controlled chaos in a sense. And, in Mystic Pizza is a perfect example. That that feels that same way. It feels like that slice of life. It feels like it breathes and there's a lot of wiggle room, but it sounds like how that happens is within the structure of knowing what you're trying to accomplish at the end of the day. Yeah, that's absolutely true. 
you know, it was scripted. Yeah. <laughs> they wrote a script for it. How about that? Yeah. You know, and, and uh, you know, y- you allow for some, but I've noticed most of the time when I've, when there's a lot of heavy improvisation in a film I directed called Family Prayers uh, with Joe Mantegna and Ann Archer and Paul Reiser, Patty LuPone, Paul um, improvised all the time. Mm-hmm. Now, he, he would always do the scene, but there would be a point where he'd keep going. And, and it was fun. And it was funny. And we used 20% of it, not, not more than 20. Yeah. Because if it's after the scene, it's after the scene. There's a dynamic and attention to the scene, you know, dramatic tension. And if you go past that, usually it doesn't work that well. Right. Um, you know, it, it's not that it's not that you don't want actors to have the freedom to move around a little bit and come up with something fresh. Everybody does that. Everybody does that. But but to go off, you know, you know, it, it's 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 too hard within the structure, especially if you have a really good screenplay. Why would you want to do that? You know, right. you're dealing with real people and their emotions. You know, I mean, and sometimes the other actors aren't always prepared for it. Some actors are, of course, they're ready, but some actors aren't as prepared for that. And, you know, it, it, it makes it uncomfortable. So, mm. you know. Well, I think that's the reason a, a film like Home Alone, which which had all the potential, and I'm sure you never talk about Home Alone, you know, uh, no one ever brings that up. But uh, the obscure art film Home Alone that you worked on, um, you know, that's a film where there's a lot of ways in which that becomes a forgotten movie. You know, there's a lot of ways in which that becomes a, a sloppier improvised, you know, kind of forgettable comedy. But I think the way, the reason that movie works is that it is so structured. The jokes are, you know, a a lot of comedy. Now you have exactly what you described. You can tell they set up one camera here, one camera here on the other actor and a wide shot and they improvise and they use the best improvisation for the shot. Whereas home alone, there's a lot of visual gags. There's a very structured, yeah. I mean, especially with the traps, obviously, but even with the the visual humor of him in the mirror and things like that, that doesn't happen just by planting it and forgetting about it and not getting very specific in how you want to structure that out. Yeah, I mean, there were some things like even the mirror, like Chris did have Mac play around, hmm. you know, a little bit and with that. Uh, but otherwise... You know, the improvisation, you know, Catherine O'Hara, of course, is a master improv in, in doing for improvisation. And John Candy was pretty good at it. But so when we had them sitting next to each other talking, you know, whether it was where was it in that truck or whatever they were in. And that's the time to do it. Right. Yeah. Just let them go. Let them right. go. And, and we did. <laughs> we let them go over and over. Long stuff. Lots of stuff. And we didn't use all of it, but we used a lot of it. And, and there are certain, see, that's a controlled situation where improvisation works. Right. It wasn't in a, in a, in a scene that was already dramatically tendered, yes, right? Yeah. It was in a scene where they're sitting on a bench in a truck with other musicians around them and they could just start talking to each other. Perfect opportunity to go, keep going, right? Just right. keep going. And, and Mac had that opportunity in front of the mirror. In fact, if I remember right, even this, you know, he kind of came up with himself. Hmm. So Chris let him do that because look, it was just a camera and the mirror and the kid. Right. Yeah. Um, But but those are good situations to do that with, but yeah, Yeah. all the other gags and everything you couldn't, 
you, you've yeah, they're never, so structured and so yeah. organized. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah I, I'm, I'm kind of curious though, so obviously again, the, the artistic mind has these ideas and concepts and things and what you want. And you've mentioned the business side and, and obviously, especially shooting on film, every foot of film is costing you money. There's money just rolling and rolling, rolling. Um, but I, I'm curious with the artistic decisions and things that you feel passionate about in the, in the script process, or maybe something that worked really well in table reads and auditions. Is there anything that you ever felt very passionate about artistically that for the production, you knew overall be better to cut it where it was a, you know, kind of a gut wrenching moment. Like I can't believe we had to get rid of that. Um, Cause I know Scorsese obviously famously despises the the blood and taxi driver uh, that they had to turn Brown for the rating. You know, is there anything like that that you can remember just feeling gutted over a decision where you had to choose one or the other? Hmm. Uh, you know, not, not really. I mean, in critical thinking, we, we had more stuff. We hmm. had actually more scenes with Michael K. Williams hmm. uh, that just didn't seem to fit into the final movie that were, you know, really good, really interesting. And it was Michael K. Williams. He could read the phone book and be interesting. Yeah. Um, and, and it is probably out of everything I've done, the one movie where we had to really make decisions on some things to cut that we really, you know, liked and, but, but just didn't, it, it was like a different movie. It was like a different dramatic point that was like, almost like a different movie. Um, so they're not in the film, you know, and um, some of it had to do with him, just not his acting just the storyline of him, him being the one of the fathers of one of the kids of the chess players. So, but not too much else. Um, there's probably something that I'm forgetting. I blocked out the trauma of whatever situation that was. Yeah. Uh, Trying to remember if there's anything in home alone, there are bits and pieces, nothing, nothing big, the critical thinking, although it's more recent and easier to remember, it also did actually have some things that we knew we had to cut out. Mm. Uh, no, not too much. No. But do you have a preference? So, you know, working on, on films like that, that are a smaller drama and things like that. And you've also worked on movies that have a larger budget and more. Do you, do you prefer one or the other? Do you prefer working in the big studio movie or do you prefer more the, the more art house or dramatic or, or independent uh, type of film? Well, you know, I've had success in both, but I like the independent ones because you're more in control. You don't have a lot of outside voices. The, 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 the people who are making the film are a really small group of people who rely on each other, create a family, which is a lot harder to do mm. on the bigger movies because there's a lot of outside control. There's outside influences from distributors financiers, studios and the like, people who make phone calls at four in the afternoon who are bothered by something right when you're on set and you get dragged off the set in some moment you need for somebody in a studio to ask you some you know, relatively minor question that hmm. just gets them off the hook for their job. So there, I, I, don't, I don't really like it as much, although lately I'm more, I'm involved in my own stuff that's bigger, you know, 
10 to 20 million, a couple things over 20 million, but they're still kind of um, independent, but commercial, but just with a bigger canvas and, and are being funded essentially independently um, with some you know, distributor involvement and foreign sales involvement. But less of a lot of hands, you know, no. not a lot of hands. Uh, yeah. I, I guess, I, I, in a sense, I do prefer the indie stuff, you know, yeah. because it's it's more fun to just have this little group of people and know it's up to you, your yeah. little your little platoon. It's up to your platoon to make this movie, and you don't get a lot of outside static. Right, and that's enjoyable, and I think I've made, you know, my best work that way. Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds like that you can do a lot with a little bit of money. It sounds like it's not so much the budget that kills movies more than the bureaucracy. It's that it's going back and forth and the, and the interruptions and the a thousand hands, you know, on one movie. Um, I, I interviewed somebody recently who has worked on a lot of Marvel movies and he's worked on really small micro budget movies and, you know, that's the thing that he mentioned was he just said, there's, it's hard to scale up that family atmosphere when you're dealing with three units and hundreds of people. And, you know, he said he liked that $20 million range where you have the feeling of an independent family while also having some money to do something, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that's well said. You know, it's a little harder right now. You know, the, the three, four five million dollar films, it's also quite frankly, you know, people have to make a living and, and it's, you know, that's good at a certain age. It's not as good when you have three kids and, you know, other things, you just have to evolve, you know, right. that way too. You have yeah. to be practical too. You know, I'm yeah. in the DPA I'm I'm in the writer's guild. I'm in the Academy. You know, I've, I'm in all of that stuff. And I, I work through all of those systems, even if I'm making, you know, an $8 million or $10 million movie, I think when I make a $10 million movie, somebody else would probably spend 30. Hmm. And I know that for a fact, I'm not making that up. That That's sort of my MO. Well, Scott makes a film for five and everybody else would spend 15 or 18, or he makes a film for yeah. 10 and it's 20 or 25. That's what I do. Right. Because I don't, and I don't mind it. I don't mind putting the, mo the money on the screen. Right. And not putting it into perks and shit. That's just, you know, terrible, you know, and a waste of time. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. No. And, and yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of, you know, sense too. like $5 million isn't what $5 million was when you're making these independent films. So, um, you know, it's, it's changed and it's gotten more expensive. And, and in that, in that vein, you know, obviously a large piece of this is marketing and, and I'm, I'm curious, you know, obviously, I mean, I keep circling back to Scorsese. I mean, Scorsese has been very vocal about the the trend of, you know, the big budget superhero movies dominating the theaters. I, from what I can see looking back, it seems like there was always those types of movies. They've just changed into superheroes. It used to be star Wars. It was all these other films, but do you feel more of that now with streaming and, and the amount of movies getting made? Uh, do you feel like it's getting harder and harder to stand out, you know, in the market? Well, you know, on one hand, you know, when the streamers started to take over, uh, not that I'm clairvoyant, but a few years ago, people would ask me at, um, you know, panels, like, where do you see all this going? Five, six, seven years ago. And I, I sort of defined this, what's happening now. Others did too. I'm not, like I said, I wasn't being clairvoyant. I just saw it coming. It just took a little longer. 
we used to talk about, yeah, people will stay at home, VOD, four, mm-hmm. six dollars. And it's like, but it took a while and it happened finally, right? So, so on one hand, it's allowed for a lot more voices all over the world. As mm-hmm. we see, they pick up stuff from all over the world. However, you know, Netflix is still clamoring after movie stars, just like studios used to do. Yeah. You still are making films for 50, 60, 70 million. I mean, you know, they don't even want to make a film for 3 million. I, we all, I think we thought three years ago, this is the place we're going to take all our great indie stuff. Mm-hmm. And maybe Amazon did it a little bit, but, but none of them are really doing that. <laughs> what we want. And it is an opportunity for more voices, for more people, for more work, because they need more. So that part's good. They're making more. They can't make, you know, 30 uh, Chris Hemsworth, $80 million movies. You know, they still have to make other stuff that, but, you know, they're making formulaic stuff. Everything's on airplanes, you know, with vampires, or it's something, you know, where somebody's chasing somebody. They tend to be pretty formulaic lately. Um, I like to watch stuff from overseas because I find it more interesting. But at the same time, you know, it's a good um, place, at least, for filmmakers to bring their material, especially, you know, now we go there first. You know, I don't think about theatrical. I think about the streaming sale to Netflix, Amazon, da, 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 mm-hmm. da, all of them, you know, HBO max, whatever. Um, you know, look, Scorsese, I, I've been a fan of his ever since NYU. Mm-hmm. And I even wrote him a letter. I was two years out of school and I wrote him a letter and I typed it on a regular typewriter and sent it to him. And, and he found, he, he wrote back to me about, you know, what I should do. I out of film school. I'm trying to figure out what to do. And he wrote me a letter, which I still have. And I, you know, I love his background, but, you know, he made the Irishman for a lot of money. Cost a lot of money. So, you know what? There's probably a $30 million version of Irishman instead of the $150 million version. And, and it, I'm not upset by it. I, I, I still love his work, but they're all doing it. Yeah. Everybody's like, taking advantage and you're not going to say no to it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I don't know whether that's really good for the industry ultimately uh, because there, not every filmmaker can do that, you know, and not every filmmaker is allowed to do that. And there still needs to be the voices, the new voices making the two and three and $4 million movies, Mm -hmm. you know, or making, you know, like this year with, with um, Minari and some of the other films, uh, that came out, you know, we need them. We need, them, you know, and, and we also need some of those directors, you know, to keep making those kinds of movies and not make a film and then get a Marvel movie no. because all they really wanted to do was get the big payday. You know, I mean, I, I'm not going to name names, but there are people, you know, who do that. And look, I, I don't begrudge people earning a living. I'd like to make more money too, but sometimes you got to do what you're here to do. Yeah. And and you have to accept who you are and, and do it the best you can and you'll be found and you'll make money. You know, you don't have to pander. Well, and, and the restrictions have birthed some of the best filmmakers, you know, some of the best work of Scorsese, you know, like Scorsese's, some of his best films came when he was scraping together the funding to do it, you know, uh, 
Sam Raimi, I mean, obviously did an amazing job with the big budget as well as the small, but you look at Sam Raimi pre Spider-Man, like amazing stuff in those limitations. Peter Jackson before Lord of the Rings, amazing stuff, you know? Absolutely. Look, Sam Raimi and evil dead. And still to this day, I remember the scene where the, it was a woman screaming and the eyeballs flying through the air and lands in her mouth. And Jesus, it's, it's, it's (laughs) fantastic. Um, you know, there's also a film by a director named Stuart Gordon years ago mm, who actually yeah. wrote, he wrote, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, and he made a film called Reanimator. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, to this day, I still think Reanimator is one of the great movies. You know, the yeah. guy's carrying around his own head, right? It's genius. It's pure genius, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of great stuff to all of that, that as you get more money, you don't necessarily become a better filmmaker. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it, it is, it's amazing. And you could go down the list. So many starting in horror, you know, Stuart, Stuart Gordon, you know, uh, I mean, George Romero, like I, I, yeah. I think of someone like that who never, yeah. I mean, he never really got his due, I think, as far as the budgets he wanted. I mean, even yeah. land of the dead was a s- smaller budget movie, yeah. but I mean, all of his films were so inventive with such yeah. limited resources and, and ability. Um, like before we, before we wrap up, I do want to ask you, you've done a lot of work internationally. You mentioned focusing a lot on the movies coming out of the foreign market. I think people are at large starting to pay attention with train to Busan and parasite. Like we're starting to broaden our American, you know, uh, film education. Uh, why are you so focused on the, on the foreign film market and how different has it been adjusting to that versus the U S it's just really a matter of, uh, getting excited again. I was sort of, Mm. you know, I I do have projects here in the States and ones I like, don't get me wrong, but um, I got excited. I started traveling to Asia and it just got me extremely excited about new stories, new ideas for me, adventure, sort of uh, Western expats in Asian culture, um, adventure, not so much action, but adventure, the man who would be King, you know, um, great movies, you know, even Graham Greene stuff, right? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I, I love the milieu and I've, I've focused a lot of my time over the last few years in the Philippines because of the culture and because they speak English. And I'm making a bunch of things there with a couple of filmmakers, one in particular, Pedring Lopez, who made a very successful film called Maria on Netflix a couple of years ago. And we're making a, a film called Counterplay. And it's a thriller that deals with a Western character, Western expat in, in the Philippines. So uh, it's heavily Filipino, but it's a Western. It's also a mixture. It's in English. So it's for the world market, but it's got an exotic location. And I'm doing that with multiple projects, TV, as well as feature mm. film in different places, Thailand and Australia and you know Malaysia and all over, because it, it's also got my juices going. I found new stories. I found great, interesting stories that I wouldn't find living, you know, in the same place or, you know, the four walls of Beverly Hills, as people sure. say, you know, I just, I just, I had, I have to get out, you know, John Houston lived in Mexico. He lived in Ireland. You know, I, I like people like that. Those are the people I respect from those mm. days, you know, which is long gone, but directors and filmmakers who wanted to live, who wanted mm. to live amongst people and, and, and like, you know, experience some other things. And I experience that all the time. So the yeah. things I've gotten my hands on or gotten interested in, 
you know, still are commercial. They're very commercial. You know, there's a film I want to do in Thailand with an American character, which is extraordinarily commercial. Mm -hmm. But it also deals with Thai culture and, you know, a whole thing, you know. So that's what excites me. You know, that's what really excites me. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of exciting stuff coming. I mean, even South Korea, like I saw The Devil, you know, was, uh, you know, when I saw that, I was like, this is one of the greatest movies I've ever seen. And yeah. I've never heard of it until now, you know, like it, it's it's interesting seeing this stuff start to get attention. And I think, you know, I, I think more and more people are starting to look, they're getting bored with uh, the kind of, you know, a, a lot of the repetitive you blockbuster know style, that, you know. That's one of the problems of a, of a, of a Hollywood system making Marvel movies only yeah i mean right. it is it is the backlash of that we can't just have that right we just can't there are too many people in the world that are not just 18 to 27 there are too many people who want to see stuff who yeah. want to experience stuff and you can't just keep throwing marvel movies at everybody and right. i think it's it's a reaction to that and yeah. you don't talk about it much people don't like to talk about it and yeah. but that's what's going on and that's why in a sense that's the, the part where Scorsese's right. Yeah. Oh, he's indicating a situation yeah. that that you know is a different spirit than than what we're talking about here. We're talking about a totally different spirit, and some of these other countries are going to start kicking our ass. Yeah. Some of them already are. South Korea right. is bringing South Korea is bringing it on. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I'm trying to do that in the Philippines. Yeah. I'm trying to develop Filipino filmmakers to be able to do the same thing because I believe they can. Because they're, you know, they're English speakers. They have a Western sense to them more than a lot of Asians, and and I'm doing that. But but you know, we're not gonna we're not gonna stay on top in that sense if we keep doing this thing that satisfies one thing, which is right. box office. You know, you yeah. have to be able to satisfy box office and creativity. It's a creative business. It's not just a business. It's not just art film. It's both. Mm. And, you, and you need to do both to keep people excited and interested. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, right before we wrap up, um, I just want to do a quick random round with you. I'm going to ask you some quick questions, some quick answers, and then uh, and then we'll see if there's anything you want to promote here at the end. But um, I'm curious. I haven't seen, I don't think I've seen any remakes in your, in your credits, uh, I mean, unless I missed it. But I'm curious, if you were given the green light to remake any film, uh, what would you choose and why? Uh, probably, probably Mystic Pizza, but hmm. in a funny way to pick up where they left off. I don't think I'd want to remake it, you know, part and parcel of the original movie. I think I'd want to tell the next story, hmm. which we talked about for a while, but it never got off the ground. And there were a variety of reasons for that. Um, because I wanted to see where they went. Yeah. I think we just got a taste of who they were. And people still talk about those three girls at the time. They were young, not so much women. And, and I think I'd like to see them as women. Um, yeah. It just, people always ask me that more than anything. Yeah. More I than feel, anything. I feel like it would do well. I feel like you could, I mean, sex and the city's doing that now with, uh, and just like that, yeah. you know, they're doing that same kind of idea. Um, who do you, whole, Oh, sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Um, who, who do you think is the most underrated filmmaker working today? Oh, geez, the most underrated filmmaker. Uh, 
Oh man. I know who's overrated, but that's not the question. <laughs> and it might <laughs> not be something you want to do. <laughs> no, at least no. in my mind. So, uh, God, that's really tough. I'm sorry. No, it's, it's okay. This, I would love to be able to answer it. Honestly, I, I'm thinking of, of foreigners, um, you know, some of which, you know, I, you know, I would have said some of the Mexican directors, then all of a sudden they hit big a few years ago, you know, Inner mm. E2 and those guys, you know, and even, oh, wow. you know, there was a, all of a sudden they they popped forward. Um, but he's not, un, I wouldn't call him uh, underrated anymore. No, uh, certainly not. Damn it. I, it's hard. <laughs> um, as soon as we're done, but. Uh, what is a movie that your diehard fans would be surprised you enjoy? Uh, let's see. I don't know. The Untouchables. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, what do you think is the best decade of film history? The seventies. I could have guessed, I think with all your inspirations, I would have guessed seventies. Um, what, what do you think is the worst decade of film history? I, I, uh, probably, you know, like the fifties, I, I know there was some film noir, but I pass right by it whenever I'm clicking around television, you know, I mean, the night, you know, maybe the nineties weren't so great either, but Mm. 50s probably just the least interesting to me yeah yeah i always go back and forth between 50s and 90s um tarantino said like the 50s was just such a homogenized like bland time and you had all the codes and things like it wasn't just the filmmaker's fault yeah but um but i find myself only watching 50s movies if my four-year-old's in the room and i have to watch something that's safe for her but that sums it up it's very safe films whereas the 70s was not that it was a very different time um Last question. What's the best piece of advice that you would give to an aspiring filmmaker who's listening to this? Well, I think the most important thing I learned is you cannot skip the steps. Hmm. You can't, you know, get on TikTok and think you're an actor. You must go through the steps. You can't make a film in film school and think you're a director. Hmm. You have to apprentice, whatever that means. I don't mean literally like a union. You have to apprentice. You have to learn your craft. You have to know the set. You have to work as a PA. You have to make each step along the way to get to the point where you're qualified to be able to actually make a film, assuming we're talking about directors. But it isn't just jumping in and directing. It's acting. It's learning how actors work. It's learning every job on the set. It's working in production. I think it's knowing how to do a budget and a schedule. I think it's all of those things to build all of your skills so that at some point you're ready to take the next step, whether as an AD or a director or on the artistic side, an art director, editor, uh, you know, cinematographer, any of those things. But you have to have the building blocks and you can't not skip the steps. You have to spend time in L.A. or New York, somewhere where all these where everybody is. You can't start and just be somewhere else and, and just think they're going to come to you. You can end up there. 
if you want to, you know, uh, live somewhere else. And a lot of people do now, and there's nothing wrong with it, but I don't think you can, you can only be there when you're starting out. You got to be around people like you who are climbing around trying to figure out their life and their, their work. And, and you have to work harder. You have to wake up before everybody. You have to go to sleep after everybody. You have to be first on the set and last off the set. You know, you have to listen and not talk a lot for a while. That's another thing. Listen. And, you know, those are, those are my rules. Those are the rules I usually give production assistants. <laughs> and if they can follow them, I pay attention to them and I give them bigger things to do on the set yeah. rather than just run around and do nothing. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, Scott, I really do appreciate you joining me and love the conversation. Is there anything just before we wrap up, is there anything that you want to make sure to promote anything you want people to check out? I know you've got a million NDAs just filing, like scrolling through your head right now. Uh, is there anything you could talk about or promote? I, I think the first thing is, you know, critical thinking came out last year during the pandemic, which was really a shame. We got, you know, we, we had a lot going for us. We, we, we were, you know, in the ballpark for probably some fairly serious distribution. And we were kind of the, you know, one of the opening night films at South by Southwest two years ago. And then everything got shut down, including South by Southwest. And we, we got picked up for distribution by a, by a nice distributor uh, vertical, but it wasn't, you know, it was a VOD release. It wasn't the same as we had hoped for pre-pandemic. And, and we think we made a fantastic movie. John Leguizamo directed it, starred in it. The guys in it were great. It was a perfect team of people. It was the first family I had felt in a long time. Mm. And it was just, uh, it's a beautiful movie that, that is well-reviewed. You know, people keep saying, where is it? I can't see it. And it's here. It's like, it drives me crazy, you know, because, because so I, I still want people to see that movie. I guess in a way, maybe we should remake that because not enough people saw it. Just re-release it. Just pretend. (laughs) Well, uh, yeah. And Leguizamo is just ferociously talented in everything he he does. He was fantastic and and great to work with. But, you know, I have a project in the Philippines called Counterplay. I just signed uh, the director, Tarsim Singh, to direct a movie I'm doing called Nanda Devi, which is a spy story set in the United States and India um, in 1964. Uh, you know, I'm working on a movie called the five about the 500 club in Atlantic city and the, the man who ran it called skinny D'Amato and that's starting to turn into something pretty big. So there's a, you know, a bunch of good things that I'm cooking up a television, a group of television shows, Asian based with Pedring Lopez who directed Maria and is directing counterplay to do for streamers. And we're talking right now to a bunch. So there's a lot going on, a lot of good things. Awesome. Well, everybody listening, be sure to check the show notes for links to some of these projects that are being mentioned. And uh, Scott, thank you so much for, for joining me on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Film School Podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, don't forget to leave a five-star review and hit subscribe so you won't miss a single episode.